aside from the royals. We do not have the first ones to help us this time. We are on our own. We will have only one chance to stop them. And if we fail, billions will die. There comes a moment when each of us must pledge himself to something greater than himself. You told Jakar he had to decide between revenge and the good of his own people. Now you must make this same decision, Captain. It will be the most important decision of your life. What do you want? I'd like to live just long enough to be there when they cut off your head and stick it on a pike as a warning to the next ten generations that some favors come with too high a price. I want to look up into your lifeless eyes and wave like this. Can you and your associates arrange that for me, Mr. Morton? Captain John Sheridan is about to face the ultimate evil. The greatest nightmare of our time is waiting for you. I'm going to stop them. On an all-new Babylon 5. You have transmissions holding. Patch incoming signal. Full audio and video decode. Purple files accessed. What you are about to see has never been shown to anyone outside the break house. out there in podcast land welcome to gray 17 a babylon 5 podcast a part of the front row network and npr illinois community voices we are a group of newbies who are watching babylon 5 for the very first time and a group of first ones who have watched babylon 5 far too much we are in the last third of season two and i do believe there'll be some discussion on this episode we are here to talk about in the shadow of zaha doom i am scott and with me is blake Nicole, Kevin, Justin, Mike, Emily, and Andrew. And if you're watching this right now, first off, some good news. The announcement Babylon 5 left HBO Max said it was going to go to Tubi and Roku TV, two free streamers so you can watch Babylon 5. There's some ads, but at least you can still watch it. It dropped on Tubi first, and we've already been saying that the order on Tubi is a little bit different than what we're doing here, and I've been calling out the episodes for that reason. But now, as of last week, it appeared on Roku and on the Roku channel, and they're using a different order than Tubi. So if you're watching on Tubi, you're wondering right now why we haven't talked about Knives. And if you're watching on Roku channel, Knives is coming up next. So as I just mentioned, we are here to talk about In the Shadow of Zaha Doom, and next week we'll be watching Knives. And I'll be calling out the episode that's next from now on because there's about 15 different ways you can watch this show. So just bear with us and uh, keep up with what we're doing based on bouncing around your streamer of choice. Or if you got the DVDs, same idea, because sometimes even the DVDs aren't exactly the same same order that we're going to be using as well too so we got that going for us scott is there a specific order that's right or a an order that it was set originally or is it just uh the streamers decide blake you've done a deep dive on this you want to talk about that a little bit so yeah there to answer your question cole yes there is both 
incorrect orders, there's correct orders, then there's the correct order, then there's the corrected order, then there's the additional corrected order. Basically, there's because we've talked about before, PTEN was not like a real network. You weren't going to pull up TV Guide and see PTN anywhere. It basically bought space on other channels. So it was at the mercy of whatever local programming was, and B5 would get preempted, moved around, and basically whatever the hell the airing network wanted to do. So there's the original broadcast order, which is not the same in the entire country. It's not the same from country to country. Um, So there's multiple original viewing orders to this show. Then there's the order that JMS wrote them in, which put an asterisk on that for a minute. Then there's the order that TNT, when they took over for season five, they rebroadcast the whole show. They did an order, which I think is what went to the DVD order. Then Apple TV picked it up. There's an order there. There's an order on HBO Max. So basically, there's all sorts of versions and variations. And you would think, you know, JMS is the definitive source of this, right? He created the show. He wrote most of these episodes. He could tell us what the order is. Yeah, he changes his mind every few years on certain episodes and changes the order his own self. So we can't even consult JMS on this one. I mean, so if anyone has a definitive order for this show, um, more power to you, because I guarantee you we can find at least 10 other orders uh, that say they're the definitive. There's a Babylon 5 fandom wiki, and there is a page devoted to viewing order. And it is a very long page. I have it up right now in front of me. It is not a short page at all. What's the the other order that people call? Is it the historical index? Is that what it's called? Yeah, there's the four main ones are the original broadcast order. Lurker's Guide has their order, which is kind of the amalgamation of everything JMS has said on the subject. Then there's the historical database order um, that kind of tries to put them in the chronological order so they make sense with continuity. And then there's a fourth one, which is more like focus story order, which reorganizes them into plot arcs. Yeah, we're not doing that one. Yeah, we're not. That that one is stupid. And for the newbies, both on this show and those listening, it's really not a big deal. I mean, there there's like one thing we haven't gotten to yet, and I'll just throw it out there. There's one time Delin laughs at a joke that she didn't hear yet. That's like the most out of continuity thing that could happen between the uh, the um, the viewing orders and what you're watching, because once you get to season three, it is so serialized, it doesn't matter anymore for the most part. But right now, we're in the wild west, and today is in the shadow of Zaha Doom. Next week is Knives, and we'll figure it out from there. I know that this is a pretty big episode, so there's probably some of you here who are listening to us for the first time, because we always get a little bit of a bump when we get to one of these big lore episodes, which is great. So just to kind of give you a heads up of what's going to happen here, we're going to do a brief synopsis of the episode so everyone's on the same page. We're going to go to our newbies first. Again, they have not watched anything past this episode they're going to give their first impressions then we're going to go to our first ones those who have watched the entire show at least once or 500 times and we're going to give our first impressions and then we're just going to talk about the episode and at the very end of this we will have our newbies give us their questions and predictions lingering questions that may come up uh that the since they've watched this episode and then what they predict is going to happen next then we're going to jettison out the airlock and the first ones will stick around after the credits and talk about all those questions and predictions and talk spoilers. So let's go ahead and first dive into a synopsis with, I believe Kevin has it. Captain, excuse me. Captain Sheridan discovers a connection between Morden and the death of his wife. The station is inundated by Narn refugees and an Earth Alliance agency, the Ministry of Peace, unveils the Night Watch 
which is trying to recruit station personnel. Justin, we'll get to first impressions in a minute, but I got to tell you, for literally a year, uh, close to a year of doing this show, we have been talking about just wait for Nightwatch. Justin's going to love talking about Nightwatch, and we are finally at Nightwatch. So let's go ahead and get into first impressions. And since I already called you out, Justin, you first. First impressions on In the Shadow of Zahadum. I mean, my first impressions watching the show was holy shit. Um, and I think that was, if I was giving the synopsis, I would use that, or I would use probably my favorite line from the Red Rising book series, and it's shit escalates. And that's exactly what happens here, man. Um, yeah, um, Nightwatch, that is fun, some fun stuff. Like, when I first met this um, this Pierce Maccabee guy, and he's like, oh, I have a little presentation. And I'm like, okay, and then all of a sudden I saw his presentation, and I was just so pissed i'm like okay yep here's here's the gestapo with armbands and everything wonderful um but the we'll get into that here in a little bit um now is this the first time we've actually heard the terms um the term first ones uh except out of out of your joker's mouths correct we've heard yeah, of first ones before thanks sigma nine whatever the heck number is uh that yeah. Jakar talked about but uh this is the first time they've actually used the term well, and now, and now we know why. Um, it was kind of finally cool to get behind the whole nightmare and the whole secret and kind of learn about the past a little bit and what the Borlons actually are. And glad to see a lot of cool stuff coming out of my homeboy, Kosh. Um, and then a good episode for Sheridan and Garibaldi dynamic. Um, their kind of interactions relating to Morden and everything like that, I quite enjoyed watching. And even though he was technically in the wrong, as Ivanova also agreed, I can't say I blame him, you know, with the way that Sheridan reacted. I probably would react the same way, too. Um, and then my favorite part of the episode, I think, has to be that epic discussion early on between Vera and Morden. I loved every second of it. And I, now I quote that part. If I was Dr. Seuss, I would name it Mr. Veer Needs a Spear. Which so. just on that, you know, that conversation with Veer and Morton, you have no idea how many times I have wanted to use that GIF in <laughs> one of our conversations of Veer just doing that. Yeah. And I haven't. But there's been so many times in our group chat I've wanted to use that. It's well, now we thing, can. It's the same thing on our Twitter account. Now I can go ahead and start using that one. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, this is a whole lot to unpack, and I'm not even sure I've unpacked it properly yet. Nicole? My reaction to this episode also was, holy shit, there was a lot that happened. Um, some of the notable things I wrote down, obviously the first ones, I was like, oh, that's got to be where it came from. Now I just want to know where Gray 17 comes from, and we'll be good. Um so that was kind of cool. I put that correlation together. Um, obviously, the Veer Morden showdown. I was like, go off Veer. All right. I was very excited about that. Um, I think that's going to be my new favorite thing now, the wave. Um, and then uh, Garibaldi and um, Sheridan, I also enjoyed their dynamic. Garibaldi just following the rules and kind of telling Sheridan to get it together. Uh, that was kind of cool. Um, and then everyone warning Sheridan about Morden, I thought was pretty significant. I mean, he had, you know, Veer come on behalf of Londo. He had Delenn and Kosh come. He had Ivanova. He had everybody basically telling him something about this whole situation. Also, I would want to uh, point out, I got to give it up to Franklin because Franklin was kind of sort of the voice of reason in this episode a little bit. Um, he was very rational and he was very level-headed. 
Um, and he was very like, I mean, obviously he needed to sleep and stuff, but like his interactions with Sheridan uh, and Ivanova, like the conversation about God and seeing God reflected in people's eyes and, you know, got kind of like telling Sheridan to like, you know, the conversation they had. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and then the whole Ministry of Peace and Nightwatch thing. I was like, mm, this is kind of shady. I, I really can't see Earth Alliance paying anybody to do anything extra in the name of peace. I think there's something else to that, but we'll go into that later. Um, and I think as far as my, you know, first reactions, I think I've pretty much covered it. And if I didn't, Justin did. So this is a really, really, really good meaty episode. And I also want to watch it again because it was just so packed with stuff. Emily, first impressions. This episode made me go back and start rewatching from the beginning. And I seriously had a pile of sticky notes as I was watching episodes. And I almost had to pull out some yarn and a whiteboard because I have thoughts. And some of them might be kind of out there, but whatever. So lots of questions coming from this episode and um, a very interesting prediction that we'll get to at the end. Well, the plot thickens. Andrew, first impressions. Well, what can I say that hasn't already been said? Um, I love that we got to see, uh, like, I feel like this is probably our first Morden-centric episode. Like, we had signs and portents, but, like, this was finally the episode where we kind of got to see, like, how much more of a threat he and the Shadows really are than what could have previously been uh, perceived. Uh, and, and, yeah, the, the, the beer scene was great. And we'll go over to our first ones now. Kevin, first impressions. This is a a favorite episode of mine among among my favorite. Um, I really like this episode because of Box Lightner in particular. I think the um, the interrogation scene is particularly good. Um, this is the first episode that David Eagle directs, and he comes back twelve other times to direct in the series. And uh, I like I like his work on this. Um, the, the Veer and Morden scene is amazing. Um, I really liked Andrew Thompson's acting in this one, even though it was, it was brief. Uh, this is a very meaty episode. You finally get some answers. Um, you know, JMS, you know, he, he teases you, but he will pay you off. And this is a payoff episode. This is where you find out, um, some of the stuff that he's been, uh, he's been hiding for a little while to, to viewers. And it's, it's a great episode. I really enjoy it. Mike. Yeah. I got to echo what Kevin said. This is probably one of my favorite episodes because it really picks up the pace of the whole storyline. And, you know, besides deepening the mystery, uh, uh, and, and we all know my, my line has been that I like a big old space mystery. Uh, it also adds a lot of weight to the universe and the things going on with the Narn conflict and the refugee problem. Uh, it deepens the the storyline with Earth Alliance and the Night Watch and you know the obvious parallels to what happened in World War II with the Nazis. And uh, and then lastly, um, I do enjoy seeing an episode like this where you get one of your main characters put under a microscope and you and you witness them pushed to a breaking point emotionally, not just you know, physically not the, not put into a gladiator arena. This is something in completely different and, and completely new that we're not uh, used to seeing from Sheridan. And uh, so I really, I do have some qualms about certain aspects of this episode, which we'll get to, but overall, I really like this one. Blake. So like Kevin, this is probably one of my favorite episodes or easily among my favorite episodes of the series. And 
I think what it reveals with the pieces that have been building, you've got Sheridan, you get some more answers into his wife and what happened. You learn more about Morden, but really that exchange with Kosh, Delenn, and Sheridan, where you get the history of the shadows and the Vorlons a little bit. And, you know, and then that end warning with uh, Sheridan, when he's sitting there ha- or standing there having that conversation with Kosh about, I'm going to go to Zaha Doom. I will take some of them with me. And Kosh just, if you go, you will die. And, but ends with Kosh agreeing that he's going to train Sheridan, which, you know, we had that reference a few um, episodes earlier that, you know, what was he trying to get Sheridan ready for? And it was to fight legends. You know, this gives some explanation to that. So I just, this is one of my favorite episodes for what it reveals. But the other thing I like about it, and this is, you know, I'm going to go back to Star Trek Discovery for a minute. We criticized season one because the whole arc with that Klingon war, you know, the thing we criticized, there was no stakes to it. Deep Space Nine with the Dominion War, there were stakes to it. You got the scale and scope of it. And I think this is one of these episodes within B5 that does really well with the Narn Centauri conflict. You see the refugees coming in. You see the impact of this conflict. It's not just referenced and off screen. It's there. You get the impacts of it, um, both in terms of the operational con uh, impacts, but also the personal impacts with Franklin and talking about treating the uh, refugees that are coming through. So it really adds that personal stake into the conflict and what's building in the show. And I love how they did that, particularly in this episode. A couple of you said that this is one of your favorite episodes, and you're not alone. We've referred to Lurker's Guides before in terms of their P5 score, their rating out of 10 based on uh, surveys that they had done you know, when the show was coming out and on past it. And this is tied for the ninth highest rated episode of the series. But there are still two more episodes in season two that rate higher than this episode. So I've I've alluded to this before, but we keep getting more as we get deeper into this show. And the two episodes I'm seeing that are still to come that are rated higher. Yeah, there's some good ones in season two. And of course, there's more to come after that too. But yeah, you guys have said uh, most of what I wanted to talk about. I really do appreciate that we have an episode here that is really getting into a lot of the questions that you guys have had over the past season and another two thirds of a season. And now I'm looking forward to hearing what you all have to say about it. So let's go to Emily first. Okay, so I have a question just to make sure I'm fully understanding. Otherwise, some of my predictions and questions might just get washed out. When Dylan and Kosh were explaining about the first ones and the shadows, were I interpreted it as Kosh is one of the first ones, but not necessarily the Vorlons. Or are the Vorlons considered one of the first one, like a group of the first ones? You're wrong, but... You weren't the only one wrong because JMS actually called this out back in the day. So what they were saying was the Vorlons were one of the first ones. As and she looked to Ka- yes, and she looked okay. to Kosh because Kosh is a Vorlon. Right. So I was, the Vorlons were first ones. Yeah. Okay. So I was a little confused by that and wanted to make sure that was clarified before going off on a completely wrong tangent. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, but like I said, JMS called that out on the Usenets as well, too, because people were asking, like, is Kosh the only Vorlon left? Is Kosh a first one and not the Vorlons? And JMS flat out said, no, the Vorlons, the species, are first ones, which means they have been around 
And he explained it as they have been around as long as a species could be around the universe, given time to evolve. So as soon as a species that's coherent enough to be, you know, intelligent can evolve in the galaxy, that's when the first ones arrived. So they've been around for a very, very long time. Nicole. And to follow up with that question, um, so obviously the Vorlons were one of the first ones. And maybe I interpreted this wrong, but the shadow people were also first ones, but they were bad. Is that kind of because they were old, like like the Vorlons too, right? Like like the same era, or did I interpret that completely wrong? I believe what Dylan said was all the first ones left except okay for one group, and that and was the that Vorlons. One group is the Vorlons. Okay, that's what Dylan said. Okay, and I think yeah. she also said during that is that the the shadows were ancient. Before, before the, the first ones. before the before first, the first ones. Okay. ones were ever even there so yeah. like they're like probably i guess you would say the most ancient Got race it. in the galaxy so damn proud you guys are listening yeah. to dialogue yeah. Good job. they're the ogs <laughs> yeah. yeah that's that's what i thought i heard but i just wanted to confirm before we had our discussion and i and i could see how that discussion could be misinterpreted to say that kosh is the only one left which is not the case I also thought it was interesting how they pointed out that he has to stay in that encounter suit because then he'd be recognized. So now we know why nobody could ever see him. So that's kind of interesting, too. Yes. By who? By everyone. I love Kosh's little... He he gives you so much and gives you nothing all at the same time. It's amazing. That's why he's my favorite. <laughs> okay, so let's go ahead. Now that we've kind of level set... And since we're already talking about the shadows and the Vorlons and everything else, let's talk about that first. So let's talk about the plot that revolves around Mr. Morden, uh, Captain Sheridan, and what he learns throughout this episode. Who wants to go first? Nicole. I thought it was really interesting how basically Kosh showed him what happened. Um, so that's obviously a cool power that we didn't know that he has, or at least I didn't realize that he can kind of show you what he wants you to see. I thought that was really cool. Um, but when he showed it to him, I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like maybe Sheridan entered a new level of like, like they're a crew and now Sheridan's part of it, if that makes sense. Sheridan leveled up. Yeah, he leveled up. Thank you. Um, but what was really interesting to me was that one thing that they pointed out, which I, I almost feel like Sheridan glazed over at first, was that they... They awoke the shadow people, the jerks, and then they basically were like, you're either going to comply and you're going to follow us or you're going to die. Essentially, you're going to kill them. So what I'm gathering is I assume Morden complied and he decided to, you know, agree with them and follow them and everyone else was killed. But Sheridan was like, well, what if my what if she's still alive? Like, it's like he almost glazed over that. Like, he didn't want to hear that. Um, but that that's kind of what I assume. But also leads me to wonder, is there other people that are part of the crew that was you know, there, or they all die and Morden's the only one kind of thing. They'll talk about that beyond the rim. Thank yeah, I'm sure they will. Thank you, Emily. <laughs> Justin, what do you got? One second. Okay. Um, I just had to change one of my predictions. But um, anyway, the point I was trying to make was, am I the only um, one during that scene? You know, we're talking about Posh's, uh, the vision he placed in Sheridan's head. So when they go into that cave and you see the shadows for the first time, it's interesting to me that when you see them, it actually looks like a physical being and not and not a shadow that you see, you know, like when they were B 
beaming the infrared light into Warren's cell and you saw the shadows there and stuff like that, you know, that's kind of what we've seen, all, all we've seen of them thus far. But this is actually the first time you actually see it as a physical being. So that makes me think that there's something going on with that planet to when when they're there, they're in corporal form, corporeal, corporeal form. Yeah. And then when they are, maybe when they leave that planet, they revert to some kind of interdimensional shadow form. But that's kind of the one thing that I picked up. I'm like, oh, why can we see what it looks like there, but nowhere else? Nicole? So two things about that that I, I picked up on. I thought he looked like a demon, like he looked like a demon evil from hell. Like if you watch a movie of like a demon possessing someone, that's what it looked like to me. But my thought on that, Justin, is maybe on their planet or in their safe place, they're in their full form. But I almost wonder if they can project themselves as shadows in other places, almost like teleporting, but not physically moving. They're just kind of like, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of satelliting or like, uh, what's the, where you put yourself out? Dang it. I can't think of the word projection projection. projection. Yeah. It's Where almost you like put a... yourself out. Yeah, sorry. I couldn't think of it. That's a, there, there's another word for that, Nicole, yes. but I don't think we can use it on this, pro, on this podcast. <laughs> but I think maybe it's like a projection of them, like kind of like the, the psychic people where there was two on the um, Centauri and two on Babylon five, and they can still communicate with each other. Maybe this is their form of being able to influence and communicate and like projecting themselves as shadows outside of their realm. Or if people are traveling or like, if they're, cause like, I feel like it's almost a way for them to keep tabs on Morden too, because they can't physically follow him around and be there with him. But essentially a projection of the demon freak as a shadow could be there and actually do stuff. So maybe that's kind of what I interpreted as like on their planet, they're there, but like they're always there as a shadow projection. Emily. So I had a different thought on why they look different on their planet. And I kind of thought it had something to do with like the actual lighting and whatever like star sun might be lighting their planet or it was just how Kosh viewed the situation. And so that's what we were getting. Cause how would, how would he have this information without like something there to record or know, or, you know, keep track of the events. So I thought it was more just either how they are on their planet because of whatever's on their planet, or it's just how Kosh was um, showing shared and what was happening. Well, and I think if you go back with some of that, Emily, is you might at the end of season one, the question that Delenn asked Kosh, have, has the ancient enemy returned to Zahadum? So I think it's safe. The Vorlons have been watching Zahadum. I think they have more info there. I mean, and because that was the answer that Kosh answered to Delenn's question was yes. I mean, so obviously the Vorlons knew somehow that was going on. Justin. So... I guess while we're kind of able to throw questions out here while we're having this discussion, I'm kind of curious what um, what some other people think, because I'm struggling with this question in my brain right now. Is Morden serving willingly, or is he being possessed slash controlled by the shadows? And if he's possessed or and controlled by the shadows, how much of the other crew, including Sheridan's wife, is out there stationed in other parts of the galaxy doing exactly what Morden's doing on Babylon 5. That's kind of where I'm leaning, is kind of the whole possession control thing, is maybe like, okay, Morden was part of the crew. We don't know who he was on the crew of the 
um, Icarus, but I almost have this feeling that he's maybe one of the shadows is possessing him and kind of, you know, so he's, he's, he's in human form, but he's actually a shadow. And I wonder if other people in the crew are under that kind of same fate and are scattered throughout the galaxy. I'm kind of curious what other people think. Let's pull the newbies on that. Is Morden serving willingly or is he a meat puppet? Nicole. Uh, I think he's a, he's doing it willingly because he's manipulative and narcissistic. Emily. I could see. Oh, sorry. I thought we were. And Andrew. (laughs) Sorry. I thought, I thought it was just a free for all. Um, (laughs) Andrew. Uh, if you're done interrupting, um, oh, give me a break. <laughs> I, uh, I I could see it going either way. Um, I think that he is serving willingly, though. Like just same reason Nicole gave. It, it seems he doesn't seem like somebody who would be possessed, but we don't know what someone pos- possessed by a shadow looks like. So, and Emily, I think it's willingly. They were going to an ancient planet to look for stuff, and um, I mean that can bring out people looking to make some money by stealing artifacts or doing other sketchy things like we saw an infection with biotechnology. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if this was willing and he was like, yeah, I don't really give a shit. It'll keep me alive. I'll do whatever. So that's Please, three guys. Baltar. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Baltar. Are we talking original or re- reboot? Yes. 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 So that's three votes for willing servant. And that's one vote for Meat Puppet. There you go, Justin. I keep my crackpot reputation alive. <laughs> and the first ones are going to sit here and go, oh. You guys are very <laughs> mistrustful of scientists. Well, to be fair, the last time we had an exploratory, or exploratory, an explorative scientist come to B5, we had an Icarin warrior show up too, so. I know, but like, do you guys ever go to the museum and talk to the paleontologists and like, you shady piece of shit? <laughs> you're narcissistic are we aren't you talk about like the british archaeologists who are grinding up mummies and snorting oh, i mean <laughs> obviously the british <laughs> or all the stolen artifacts in museums throughout the world i mean just please please they're they're, <laughs> they're being protected for their own good <laughs> okay i'll have you know currently we are the number 23 tv review podcast in the united kingdom to all our british friends <laughs> fuck mike nicole you're up uh just wanted to kind of piggyback off of some i forgot already i think it was blake who was talking about kosh one thing i wrote down is that um he uh obviously the the vorlons have been keeping tabs on the murder shadow people but also they pointed out that the vorlons are the last remaining guardians and like protectors from the shadow people so i feel like that was important to to bring up because you know at the end how they how Sheridan asked him to teach him how to fight them I feel like maybe the Vorlons are the only ones who know how but although Delenn did say the Membari were part of the crew that beat them before defeated them before so I think or I guess maybe I'm 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 like the Membari and the Vorlon know kind of how to beat them so I guess, are they going to lead the charge on like trying to take them down when the shit hits the fan? I guess that's a question, but um, I just thought it was important to point out that like for the discussion that, you know, the Vorlons are one of the last remaining guardians and then the Membari were part of the crew to beat them as well. So I feel like it makes sense that that Delenn and, and um, Kosh were like knew what was going on and like 
were keeping tabs and like when Jakar was talking about this Jahadun and all this stuff, they kind of like were like, yeah, we know. But like they maybe didn't want to lead on because they also said that if the shadow people knew what they knew, that they would strike essentially. So um, maybe, you know, they kind of played dumb when Jakar was bringing it up and like telling people about them. Um, so I, I, it's really interesting how, like thinking back in previous episodes and interweaving all that was revealed in this episode. So, um, I definitely think that the, the Vorlon and the Membari are probably going to be a major player in this whole showdown that's about to happen. Emily. Um, since Nicole brought up Jakar and the Narn, I was wondering where they fit in because he was referring to one of his historical texts and it was like 10,000 years prior, they had had something with these beings and he was like that's what this is so i'm curious as to what has happened in narn history that they went from having interactions with the shadows in some form knowing they exist were they part of the group that fought the shadows were they not developed enough because when when they talk about the centauri invading and attacking narn they basically made it sound like they were just agrarians and didn't have much technology. So yeah, lots of questions about the Narn involvement there. Cool. Justin. I kind of see what you're saying, Emily. Um, the, cause that's one thing I had written down was the connection to that ancient text that um, Jakara was looking at earlier. And it wouldn't be the first time, even in earth history where a seemingly agrarian, lesser developed civilization claims to have knowledge of the stars and, you know, be descendants of, and their gods are descendants of uh, beings from the sky. There's Native American tribes who, you know, have that same kind of origin story. So it wouldn't shock me at all if somewhere within Narn mythology is some kind of encounter with the shadows. And even the last encounter with the shadows, I think Delenn said was only about a thousand years ago. Uh, when there was an alliance between the Mimbari and others where the shadows struck too quickly and were beaten back by an alliance of races, which maybe the Mothanarn might have been even involved in that. Who knows? But um, but yeah, I think it I think it's very interesting that you see that in very early Narn mythology and it would kind of line up with what, you know, we have some religions in the world, you know, preach about that kind of stuff as well of you know, demons from the sky or beings from the sky that were gods originally to these people. We've all seen Stargate, maybe. Nope. I watched Stargate Universe. Okay. It was good. Shame on all of you. I not not Stargate. all. It's a great not film. all. I've seen Stargate. I've watched Stargate's a all great Stargate. <clears throat> Me too. The movie was good. I never watched the shows, but the movie's fantastic. Is there a Stargate Atlantis? Yes. Mm -hmm. I've seen that against my will. <laughs> okay. Jason Momoa. My my wife likes that show better than SG One. She doesn't really care for SG One because of I, Jason Momoa. I watched the pilot episode of Stargate, uh, Stargate, which was I recognize it didn't stay on Showtime, but there are boobs in the first yeah. episode of Stargate. Just <laughs> Andrew's like, sorry, well, hold on, I found my new show. It was the only time that that was true. Yeah, still, well, because it was still, on Showtime. Still waiting for something to pop up in Sequest. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Commander Hitchcock. Like. Yes, Stacy Haddock is very pretty. 
So let's continue talking about Zaha Doom and the Shadows. Anybody else have anything they want to add? I want to add, and you guys talked about in your first impressions, that interaction between Veer and Mr. Morden is just Stephen First and Ed Wasser both. Those two are just so good at what they're doing. And I love that Veer is starting to come into his own. I mean, you, you, you've seen it. Veer, we the first time, well, not the first time, but one of the first times we see Veer, he's sitting there playing a little handheld game and just not giving a shit about anything. Then he starts finding out that Londo's starting to do things he doesn't think Londo should do, and we can go in all that conversation again down the road. But he's starting to ex- assert himself and to really start being a different person. You're seeing so much character growth out of this, and I'm just loving that you guys are starting to see that now too justin uh two things one add this to the question list what is on the crystal that morden is passing to londo inquiring minds want to know and then um two morden's evil smile at the end of the episode chilling af like it almost uh, sorry sorry well i was actually probably you're going to say the same thing that i'm going to say psycho yeah, the end of Anthony the original Perkins. Psycho film. Just yeah, just the smile that he gives when he's looking right into the camera, and that's really harking back to me with Morden. And it was it was chilly, like it was like I felt it. It was it was fantastic. Where like he knows he's getting away with it, and he's like, "You thought you had me, but peace out." Loved it, Nicole. So I want to double down on the Morden thing, but before that, I am here for Sassy Veer. I cannot wait to see more. So I just had to point that out. Um. Another thing I want to point out about Morden and his dumbass, um, the interaction with Talia and Morden in the hallway where she literally sees the shadow thing and like she like breaks down and then she just bitch slaps Sheridan like that was pretty epic. He, he deserved, deserved it. That. He did. Mm-hmm. He did. He even said it himself. He's like, yeah. I had that coming. <laughs> yeah, he deserved it. But um, I thought it was crazy how like obviously he planned it that way and he wanted to see how Talia would react. But she didn't even try or attempt to read him. She just walked past him. And that sense of evil and that shadow thing was so strong that she couldn't help but be taken over by it. And that I thought that was really significant to show how truly evil that he and those little shadow fucks are. By the way, JMS uh, said that that slap scene, there was only two takes. And the one we saw was take number one because she was hitting Bruce Boxleitner too much to do more than two takes so it was it connected and what you saw was take number one of two yeah bruce actually uh refused to do a third take he's like no i think you got it she got me pretty good the first time around (laughs) she was pissed she's not getting enough time on the show justin yeah for sure she really slapped the shit out of him i was like "Ooh, well that happened but I mean, I guess another argument for my meat puppet theory is like, because that's a good point. I've completely forgotten about that exchange between Talia and Morden, because even that you see his face turn to shadow, like you see his face turn really dark. So maybe she sees him as a shadow. So another point for meat puppet theory. Anybody else for the shadows before we move into mini packs? Well, has has anybody wanted to discuss Sheridan and his actions in this episode? Because I think we should do that before you move on. Good idea, Mike. Boxleitner said that he really enjoyed filming this episode because up until now he had been, you know, the the smiley kind of goody goody 
good guy and he enjoyed giving some dimension to the character and even though it's pretty understanding you know what his uh, thought process throughout the episode was you know it was coming from a pretty emotional place um, it was still a very interesting episode to to film and I liked watching it Nicole so um as we know, I'm a Sinclair stan, and I've grown to start liking Sheridan a lot more. Um, but I do like, uh, I, I am now officially like Sheridan. So that's, you know, good. But I saw a little bit of a little Sinclairish, Sinclairish activity in him a little bit, because Sinclair was one to always kind of bend the rules, do what he wanted, put himself in the line of fire, kind of jump in and just do his own thing. Even though he respected his command, he kind of played by his own rules. And this is the first time I feel like we've really seen Sheridan kind of do that. I mean, obviously his reactions, you know, they were breaking so many laws and so many rules that even Garibaldi, who isn't the most ethical of characters at all times, was like, yo, dude, you're like really breaking the rules, you know? Um, But at the same time, it's hard to not commiserate and understand why he did it. That emotional tie, um, I feel like is like a just a an outsider and a viewer. If you didn't have any sort of attachment to the show or him, and this was the only episode you'd seen, I feel like he would have that emotional like tie would have drawn you in, if that makes sense. Like I really felt like it tugged at my heart a little bit, but also like he was very, very wrong in very many levels. And even with Ivanova, when she was like, you can't do this. And and he was like, tell me you wouldn't do the same. She's like, oh, I can't, you know? So it was kind of like most people were turning their cheek and like letting him do it, even though they knew it was wrong, but also like trying to tell him that he's wrong, you know, and like Garibaldi stepping down. I was very surprised at that because like I said, Garibaldi isn't always the most most ethical person, but he, even he was like, this is not good. And then I feel like that speech he gave about um, Churchill and Coventry and all that, like that, that almost made me cry. Like just watching him, like playing that scenario out in his brain, because he's kind of in that position now. Does he let this guy go with what he knows or does he try to do something about it? So I really enjoyed um, the depth in the, in the acting and the emotion and just everything he put into this episode. And I, if I didn't like him before, which I was starting to, I like him even more now after this episode, although I'm still a Sinclair stan. Emily. Um, I had a hard time with it because he was so over the line. And while I understand why I was very uncomfortable with it, I did like Garibaldi standing up to him and being like, yeah, you're going to do this. I'm not going to be a party to this. Like I I do have my limits and this is where I'm going to draw them. And I felt like that was actually good for their relationship because now, you know, Sheridan knows where that line is and knows that, um, how much he can trust Garibaldi and what Garibaldi will and will not do. Um, And as frustrating as it was to see him just be like Sheridan, just be so over the top and violate so many rules and regulations and laws and even ethics. Had he not done that, how much longer were Delinda and Kosh going to hold out the information about more? Like if he hadn't done that, he wouldn't have the information he has to be able to go forward. So, yeah, it was not the greatest decision, but I guess he got some good information from it. Mike. Okay, so I alluded earlier to the fact that I had one 
kind of qualm with this episode, and it has to do with Sheridan and Garibaldi. Um, I guess my feelings about it are kind of complicated, but I can say this. I feel like it's a, a trope in Hollywood writing where you have, you know, the, the, the one guy, the good guy who's going to go too far. And then his partner, sidekick, whatever, who steps in and says, hey, man, you need to back down, uh, throws his badge on the table and says, I can't be a part of this, whatever. And at the end of the whole thing, there's some you know hand dusting and everything goes back to normal. So it's not that Babylon 5 is guilty of this exclusively, but I do kind of just have a problem with it because at the end of the day, Garibaldi plays his card. I'm going to resign if you keep going along this you know, line of, of action. And obviously he's hoping Sheridan is going to go, oh crap, you know, and that'll be the wake up call that snaps him out of it. But it doesn't. The, the, the bluff, if it's, a, if it's a bluff, doesn't work. He has to resign. But at the end of the day, what's, what's troubling about that to me is the fact that it doesn't work like that. Like Garibaldi can't know that bad stuff is going on, put his badge on the table and just walk away. He still should have reported Sheridan or what he knew was bad right because seeing it and not saying something makes him complicit doesn't it i guess i'm asking the class well i'll say this it's easy to figure out why ivanova wouldn't wouldn't report it because they've worked together before they trust each other um she's subordinate to him um in rank and position so that part of it is easy the fact that these two guys don't really have a history together um it's it's tough to to report a superior um i i've been faced with that that decision before and i wish that i had made a different decision but i didn't because of reasons and it's not an easy thing to do so uh i not not to disagree with you necessarily but i can i can see where sheridan uh his actions would push garibaldi to be like you know what i gotta walk away but i can also see why he would make the decision you know what i don't know if i want to go that extra step and report this but i'm not going to participate in it i i don't think that necessarily makes him complicit at least not from an ethical standpoint because you know, he he literally had nothing to do with the with the actions and did his best to try and get it to, to stop. And at the end of the day, it was just, um, you know, an, an extra uh, detaining a period, um, which, you know, who, who's to know what the laws are like? They, they kind of glossed over that a little bit in the episode. But I can understand the thought process to, to make the decision that reporting a superior was not the way to go. My thought was that I understand what you're saying, Mike, but realistically, if that was the case, everybody was complicit in a way because Ivanova, Garibaldi, Kanicki, I don't know what his name is on the show. I always forget. I know Kanicki is Zach. in his name. Zach, Zach that's Allen. It. Yes, Zach, um, Kosh, Veer, Delenn, literally everybody knew what he was doing. So anybody could have reported him because I, I don't I would assume if you were going to report an officer to Earth Alliance, it doesn't necessarily have to be someone in Earth Alliance. If like somebody saw him doing something shady that wasn't part of it, they could like one of the ambassadors, I'm assuming they could probably report him too. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a, a difficult situation, like kind of what Kevin was saying, because like everybody saw what he was doing and everybody knew he was wrong, but nobody, you know, part, nobody like 
reported him, but Garibaldi just took himself out of the situation, which I don't know if was the best thing, but also like, it's kind of like a rock in a hard place. Like, what do you do? You know, anybody could have, could have done it. So um, I think that there was an element of understanding and compassion to it, a point maybe, but also like people were starting to get like, all right, this, this needs to end. Or I feel like if it would have gone on any longer, somebody would have reported him, if that makes sense. That could be, I think, why Kosh and Delin stepped in and was like, all right, you asked for it. Here you go. Here's all the info. Um, so that's just what I, I, I'm like, I see where you're coming from and I agree to an extent, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, for me, it kind of harkens back to our discussion earlier about the techno mages and how they knew that a bunch of bad stuff was going to happen. And rather than bother trying to warn anybody that it was happening, they just decided to fuck off to outer space and not come back. And that is almost exactly how I saw Garibaldi behave in this situation and i'm not going to say that i think it's not relatable in any way because i absolutely get how it's 100 percent relatable and how every single character in this did probably the most human thing it's still troubling yeah so one thing that i put in my notes about the whole uh basically holding morden captive uh, i wrote uh like this is why you don't let personal feelings interfere with business because the whole reason he was even holding this guy captive was just because uh he thinks he had something to do with his wife's death. And as someone who currently is working in management, uh, I'm afraid I see this uh, far too often. Uh, obviously, nothing nearly as serious as this. But uh, yeah, like I totally understood where Garibaldi was coming from with like, if this is if you're going to keep this up, like I'm, then I'm out. Like, and I think part of the not reporting it is this, the overall situation too. I mean, everyone kind of knows there's something up with this that everything's not on the up and up with Morden either. So I think I think that's part of their equation in not necessarily reporting it is, I mean, one, you're reporting that we detained a dead guy. That oh, by the way, the Centauri want out, and then so there, there's I think there's just a lot of layers to that as far as why it would either not be reported or kind of overlooked because I think it would raise more questions what anybody would want to answer by reporting it as well. Okay. Justin, what do you got? I guess just my last thoughts regarding the whole Sheridan situation is was Sheridan the wrong? Sure. Um, do I sympathize with them? Absolutely. Um, this is a man who obviously has some deep unresolved issues uh, regarding the death of his wife. And I think this is going to be something that, especially in relation to now what he knows, is going to probably play out throughout the rest of the series in, in in some form or another. But, you know, I think I said it during my first impressions. I can't I can't say I blame the way that he reacted. And I think that in my in, in his if I were in his place, I probably would have had a very similar reaction. Like this is the this is the first, I guess breadcrumb into finding out something he was never able to find out in these years since his wife passed away is exactly what happened because nobody knew anything and you know he's he he obviously isn't over it and probably will never be in a lot of circumstances but he saw a link to her like even during the beginning of this episode he was going through some of her old things and finally i think trying to make an attempt to move on and move past this. And then all of a sudden this gets dropped in his lap and he, he behaved in a very human way and had a very human response to it. So, you know, yes, while he was technically in the wrong, um, can't help but feel bad for the guy. Mike. Okay. 
So one more one more addendum to this, just because I know we have a lot of listeners from other countries, and uh, I just want to let you all know on the point of on the point of Morden being declared dead, um, our government in the U.S. does sometimes have a habit of declaring living people to be dead at random times. I know several people who have been declared dead <laughs> and had to go tell the government that no, in fact, they were still alive. So it's not an unprecedented situation. <laughs> Mike, were you involved in any of these situations? <laughs> no, no, not not at all. Okay. I just heard the stories about how many different government agencies they had to talk to and how long it took to prove to them that they were still alive. I'm not dead yet. I feel happy. Okay. Let's move on. Speaking of happy, let's He's move totally on. mostly dead. But Morton wouldn't want to do that either, though, Mike. I think that's the thing is Morton wouldn't saying. necessarily want to go to Earth authorities and have him de- self-declared living. Well, hell no, he's not paying taxes anymore. <laughs> okay, let's move on to the Ministry of Peace. Ooh, the Ministry of Bullshit? Mini packs or mini bullshit, if you prefer. Emily? All right, who's actually funding them? Because previous episodes, they've talked about budget cuts on B5 and all this other financial shit, but all of a sudden they have all this money for extra to pay people. 50 credits a week to like walk around at night with an armband on where's this money actually coming from tell me you haven't worked for a government without without telling me you haven't worked for a government they find room in the budget for whatever they want to find room in the budget for (laughs) while still also saying we don't have enough money have you seen the united states house of representatives lately yeah actually i have but it's time for budget cuts but not the pentagon (laughs) yeah so where exactly is that money being reallocated from the ministry of not peace. I don't know. <laughs> Ministry of Honesty. Mm. Justin, what do you got? So, um, where in the history of totalitarian regimes have we not seen this happen? Um, you know, all we want is to bring peace to the people. And by peace to the people, we mean, you know, we have to be careful about subversive thoughts and even subversive ideas and you know, anything that could not make people want to go along with peace. What is peace? Peace is peace, you know, and being very vague about everything. And and then, you know, the biggest thing about the Night Watch is not only do they have the cute little armbands, like the membership cards that I guess you get from different things, but you have, you know, you, you get paid, you know, who's not going to, who's not going to perk their ears at some extra money. But you get paid 50 extra credits a month to spy on your neighbors and report back to the ministry. You know, well, we don't want you to, we're not saying those people are bad, you know, but, you know, they basically said re-education without saying Mm re-education, you know, and it was, you know, as soon as this guy started talking, because as soon as like when he got up on stage and I saw Nightwatch in the back, I wrote down and I literally said, what the fuck is Nightwatch? And then I learned. And um, yeah, you're in the right to you got you first ones to thinking that I was going to lose my fucking shit over this because that's exactly what happened. <laughs> we have literally um, been talking about Nightwatch for months. <laughs> yeah, this is this is and now, of course, then the red yarn goes spraying all over the room. And I'm like, who else? You know, I was really disappointed to see Zach do it because how many people else in the history is just, well, if they want to throw some extra, you know, credits my way, you know, who am I to refuse? And then, you know, eventually will Zach realize the price that he's going to end up having to pay for that down the line? 
and and who else who else is you know who else from the station is going to be involved and you know everything like that and how deep is this everybody's going to be spying on each other and you're going to have falsehoods and innuendos and you know people knocking opening up your quarters late at night dragging you off in a hood somewhere to be interrogated just because somebody thought they saw something and it's just the horrific things that we've been seeing rising up within the Clark regime are coming to fruition. Nicole? (laughs) I don't know how to follow that, but (laughs) um, (laughs) my thoughts on this whole Ministry of Peace and the Night Watch thing was this is such fucking bullshit. First of all, there is no way that Earth is going to fucking fund this. Okay. They're cheap bastards. They want to charge their fucking officers for rent. Okay. Um, secondly, what authority do these people in Nightwatch have? Like what, like, what's the point of it besides being tattletales with a funny patch on their arm and getting extra money? Because does this mean the Nightwatch people are going to be the ones that are like, like, um, enforcing things or like who, who is in charge and who is going to be enforcing said I heard this person did this kind of thing, you know, like what kind of authority and what kind of structure does this thing have? Um, Is it just I wear a patch and tattle? Is it I'm going to pull people out of their rooms in the middle of the night and beat them and waterboard them? Is it uh, I'm going to um, incite trouble or like it just makes no sense to me. It's I feel like it's just maybe a ploy or like a distraction almost from what's going on in the climate of the whole Clark regime and the whole Narn Centauri war and everything else. Like it's almost like a, I feel like it's a distraction in a way. Um, I just think it's total bullshit. And I want to know who's in charge, who's making decisions. What authority do the people who wear the patch have? Does it mean anything? Does it have any significance besides I get extra money and wear a patch? You know, um, those were my thoughts on this whole thing, but I think it's a crock of shit. Nicole, I'm so curious. Nicole wants to, Go ahead, Nicole wants to speak to the manager is what I'm hearing. Yeah, she wants a care in it. <laughs> Nicole, I, I'm interested to know, okay, if you don't think Earth is funding, and I'm not saying they are or they aren't, who do you think is? I, I have no idea. That's the thing. Like, it, it doesn't to me sound like something that Earth would be behind unless it was a distraction from all the other shit going on. Because they, you know, like maybe they realize, oh, people are being suspicious of what happened with Santiago or maybe like that would be the only reason I think Earth would fund it as to make it a distraction. But I have no idea who would fund it or who would be behind it if Earth wasn't. I just can't see Earth dishing out extra money and like putting out a peace process because they don't give a shit about peace or anybody else. They they have no respect for people and they, you know, like they just have been shady all along. So I can't, I guess I just can't correlate them wanting to have peace and do this. So uh, but I have the, no, oh, go ahead. So, so you think the ministry of peace is there to create peace? Interesting. But... No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so again, it's someone like Scott who has worked in the public sector. I love this notion from you all that, you know, Oh God, earth is too cheap to pay for this. Yeah. Right. You know, we, as those of us that have worked in the public sector have seen time and time again, we have budget cuts. Oh, by the way, here's this shiny new thing we bought right over here. You know, it it's government. And, you know, you talk about you know, the budget cuts and the charging people for rent. It, reallocation of funds, that rent money is what's paying the extra 50 credits a week to the people wearing the armband. It's funny how you can move line items around and pay for things in government accounting. 
But anyway, you know, looking at this, though, we've seen it happen time and time again through history, where it's this process of othering people based on thoughts, ideas, dissent. I mean, look at crackdowns now in Russia. You've got a Wall Street Journal or journalist right now in jail because for espionage because he wrote a was researching an article on mercenaries working for the Russian war effort. This stuff happens. I mean, even looking in U.S. history, look after 9-11. What, what was the catchphrase? If you see something, say something. How many people of Muslim faith during that post-9-11 period were subject to random phone calls reporting suspicious activity um, simply because it was that mass paranoia around someone who was different? You know, we've seen that throughout history with the Nazis. It was the Jews with, or well, anybody else that wasn't white, Aryan, and, you know, have a funny mustache. But you've seen this happen time and time again. And I think that's just an extension. And I, the piece with Zach putting the armband on, I think is the example of how easy it is for the people you don't expect to fall into it to get pulled into it. Because maybe they don't believe the ideology at first. It starts with, hey, here's the extra 50 credits, wear that and just go around and like, hey, yeah, if all I have to do is put that on, wear 50 credits and do what I'm already doing, sure. It's That's the subversive part I think they're showing is how easy people fall into this. Because that's how many people have asked after World War II is how did so many people in Germany go along with this? Because it just started just like what this showed. And, you know, along with that, not all armbands are bad. No, hear me out. JMS flat pointed out in the Usenets, military police wear armbands. Members of the Red Cross wear armbands. Members of the United Nations forces wear armbands. Just throwing it out there. Not all armbands are bad. Emily. Okay, so back to the funding issue. And the reason why, okay, here's the reason why I don't think it's actually the Earth government paying for it. Because we had the PSYCOR commercial that was endorsed by the organization back in infection. And this seems like something they would probably fund in some manner. And that's why I really do question where is the money coming from? Is it being funneled somewhere from one of these organizations? Because we know that shit can happen too. Um, is someone getting a kickback on this? Probably, I'm assuming, based on all the other corruption we've seen so far with Earth Force and everybody else hanging out over there. Um, so yeah, that's why I'm I'm just really not convinced it's the mice truly coming from a legitimate government source. Andrew. Yeah, I just wanted to throw in uh, my first thought with the whole Nightwatch thing was it, it kind of reminded me more of uh, McCarthyism and how we treated uh, uh, the Communist Party. Um, yeah. But yeah, pretty much similar reasons, the the whole see something, say something kind of thing. But yeah, I, my, my mind did not immediately go to Nazis. Nicole. I just kind of want to double back on what I was saying before and listening to everything that Blake said and everyone else said. I I just think it's a almost like a propaganda campaign, like like campaign, like a distraction. It's I don't know how legitimate it is, I guess, is my first thought. Like, yes, they say they're funded by Earth. Yes, they say that Earth is behind it. But I don't know. I just get this sinking feeling that it's not what it's meant to be. Like, it's not what it's saying it is. I, I just feel like it's floofy propaganda bullshit and a distraction from what's really going on or what's about to go on. Anything anyone else wants to add about the episode before we go into questions and predictions? Uh, I actually had one thing I wanted to point out that I forgot to bring up in the beginning. We saw a lot from Zach this episode. 
or Kanicki, as I like to call him. But I mean, I don't think I've seen him as active in. I mean, I know he's had parts in other episodes, but I feel like he was a really big character in this one. Also, I thought it was kind of funny how Sheridan was like, all right, fine, Garibaldi, you're out. Zach, now you're in charge, you know, of this guy. So but he didn't even question. He's like, okay. (laughs) So one thing to keep in mind, too, with Jeff Conway uh, at this time, and unfortunately, later on in his life, too, he was dealing with addiction for uh, the 80s and 90s, a lot of them. So hiring Jeff Conway for a show in the 90s was kind of like hiring Robert Downey Jr. to be Iron Man. It's like, is he going to do well? Can he handle this? He had a lot of friends in the production one of which was Claudia Christian. She worked with him previously in a, a show. So um, I think they brought him in as almost a favor and saying, hey, we'll give you a chance. And as he's proving himself and proving that the actor can handle the production schedule, you're starting to see that he's being written into more episodes. He's getting more to do. So I think it's Jeff Conway proving to everybody that he can do this show, which Unfortunately, if you know his whole life story, this is a this is a moment in time where he was able to pull it off. But unfortunately, he doesn't have many of those moments. Well, and I think him being promoted kind of suddenly into a into a managerial role, into a leadership role um, as Garibaldi departs. He didn't even know Garibaldi had departed. Right. Sheridan told him that on the spot. So I, I think it's very believable that he kind of has to just go along with it because he's like blindsided by it. And, and, you know, I, I can only speak from my personal experience of being promoted from the trench up to the, to the management role that it, it takes some growing into. It was definitely nice to see more from him though. And I hope we see more as we go along. Yep. Agreed. Well, and it was a believable story that Sheridan just said, Hey, you know, the, the chief needs to take a, uh, leave of absence here so I need you to step up and you know uh, a number two person usually is you know more than willing to do that in a pinch usually okay let's go ahead and move into questions and predictions and while I do that Actually, gonna... before we go there's I just wanted to touch briefly on this was another one of the episodes that brought religion in pretty with a pretty open discussion with that conversation between Ivanova and Franklin and we get some into Franklin's belief uh, with the foundationalism, which was established for the show. JMS actually created, and according to him, he's created a document that really covers the history and principles of it. Uh, don't believe he's ever released it because he said he was afraid of being uh, L. Ron Hubbard uh, out of it uh, <laughs> if he did that. But he did create quite a bit, which coming from a guy who was part of a religious cult and is a professed uh, atheist at this point, I think this was a really good kind of expose into religion and belief with the discussion between Ivanova and uh, Franklin. So just wanted to get some of your thoughts on that as well uh, as Scott gets queued up for questions and predictions. Well, I'll dive in. I love the idea of the foundationists as a humanist myself. um, It's, it's uh, interesting to see that kind of new ideas pop up as you get farther into what's ever going on around civilization in this case aliens show up well that's going to fundamentally change how we deal with religion at least for some people and i i do appreciate the idea that whatever god is if there is one is so past the realm of understanding that the foundationists just believe it's just you know we can't even handle that conversation. So let's just move on. It's an interesting idea, Justin. Yeah, it was, 
it kind of perked up my interest too when he was talking about foundationists and stuff like that, and especially relating to Zeno's paradox, which is kind of a very interesting and somewhat convoluted uh, part of physics and Aristotle um, thought that is kind of dropped in there about how you can never complete a journey because the more steps you take, the further something might get away. And even like Zeno himself talked, or the whole thing is that you, you really can't ever progress because, you know, in order to go the whole journey, well, first you have to go halfway. Well, then you can only go a quarter way. Well, then you can only go an eighth and so on and so forth to where almost the person in motion is almost paralyzed. So the argument was even made in the original Zeno's paradox about how all motion is, is an illusion and how that kind of where, what I thought wrapped into what, what Franklin was saying is the more you try to search for God, the further away God feels. And the more we try to understand God, the more God doesn't make sense. And it was, you know, it was it was kind of interesting to have. Yeah, I mean, Franklin have a very humanist thought on, on religion. And whereas Ivanova was, yeah, I believe in God because that's kind of the way I was raised. You know, doesn't seem like she gives a whole lot of thought to it where you see where it sounds like Franklin gives a whole lot of serious thought into his beliefs and He's not even 100% sure what he believes at this point. So it was, it was it was a very interesting conversation. I will say one thing to Ivanova. I don't think she doesn't give a lot of thought to it. I think she gives a lot of thought to it. And she kind of alludes to that when she says, sometimes I believe. Well, yeah, true. Nicole, what do you got? I was going to say, like, just that conversation when um, he asked her what she, if she believed in God. And she said, well, I was raised a Jew. I was bar mitzvah and, or bar mitzvah and all that. And and he's like, no, I'm not asking you, like, how you were raised. I'm asking you what you believe. And she said, well, sometimes I do. And then I just thought it was a really interesting kind of that he pointed out, like, like I was raised Catholic and I made all my sacraments up until eighth grade. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what I believe or what I practice. You know what I mean? There's a there's a stark difference between what you know and what you believe. So I thought that was a really interesting paradox there. And then when he was describing kind of what Justin was saying, that like the the more you search for God, the farther he is away. And like when he said that, um, you know, when people are, are, are dying and they look at, into your eyes and they look scared and they look hopeless. And then there's that one ounce of like they're looking past you. And they see something and he said he couldn't describe it. He said that's like God reflecting in their eyes and then they're gone. And that to me, I thought was really poignant because, you know, um, they there's a lot of people who say like right before you die, you see God or right before this, you know. So I thought that was really interesting that he said that because it's like he he has a very human humanist view. But also I feel like he's spiritual as well, because that's kind of a spiritual statement, I thought. Um, and also, like, if you've ever been in the room with somebody as they've passed or been there for it, there is a weird sense of like calm you know that that come it's just really hard to explain so when he said that it, it kind of hit me like whoa like that's really really deep and it was really interesting because as humanist as it was and and the what was it the fun foundationalist is what he called it i thought it was really interesting because i did think he also was very spiritual with it as well um and i agree with you scott i think that ivanova definitely does think about it and like she said i believe sometimes and I know that if we all have, if any of us have faith or like me, for example, I can't speak for anyone else. You know, if I have faith in something, there's been times and things that have happened that have tested that. And like, yeah, sometimes I do, but sometimes I'm like, 
how could this be real if this is happening? So I think it was a, a very raw and human conversation as well. And it was probably things that people have thought about. Um, you know, typically I wouldn't ever discuss religion with people, but since we're on the topic and this discussion happened, you know, I think that um, it kind of, every aspect of the conversation has kind of been relatable to pretty much anyone, no matter what your background or your thoughts are or your beliefs. Um, because I feel like we've all been in that point where we've tested or we've questioned, or maybe if we don't believe, maybe we've had moments that happen that maybe make us question, maybe there is something bigger out there. So I just thought it was a really poignant conversation that I thought um, was, was it was an important conversation to be in this episode because of the, the Narn refugee situation. But I almost feel like this could have been a whole subplot on its own. Okay, let's go ahead and move into questions and predictions. And again, for those who are just joining us for the first time, our newbies will give us any lingering questions that they have as well as predictions. And then we will just them out the airlock, which Dr. Franklin does not appreciate. And then we will have our first ones answer those questions and discuss those predictions and see just how close and how far those predictions are. So let's go into Cole first. Questions and predictions. Okay, so question. Is Morden going to go after Sheridan now with the shadow people? Like, is he going to have a vendetta against him and like attack Babylon 5 specifically and or Sheridan? Um, and then I think Justin already asked if there was more people from the Icarus or is Morden the only one? Um, and then my other question is, um, are we gonna, are we actually gonna see Kosh training Sheridan? Like, and what does that, like, are we gonna see what that entails or is that gonna be an off screen kind of thing? And he just knows what to do, I guess. Um, and then prediction wise, I guess my question is also somewhat of a prediction. Like, I think that Sheridan might have pissed off Morden and maybe pissed off the shadow people. So I I have a feeling that it's going to escalate maybe sooner than we thought. And that's all I got. Justin, questions, predictions. So I guess one question, I don't know if it's, just, if it's a beyond the rim question or if it's something that can be answered. But so after we learn more about Morden and now that we kind of know more about the shadows, Morden's original encounter with Kosh, where Kosh got kind of messed up a bit, was that actually Morden who attacked him? Or was that a sh one of the accompanying shadows that attacked him? I'm very curious to see if we will someday learn that answer. We can actually talk about that now, because you guys have seen a little bit more. But JMS actually did say, uh, after this episode came out, that Kosh was referring to the shadows that were with Morden when he said, they're not for you. And so you can read into that as you will. Interesting. Cool. So I guess going on to predictions, um, because, yeah, I talked about who else on Babylon 5 may end up with the Night Watch. And then if there are other survivors from the Icarus that are being controlled by the shadows out amongst the stars. So predictions. The environment of distrust on Babylon 5 is going to become an issue. Um, especially as more and more people probably sign up to join the Night Watch and probably more security people than anything else, maybe even some officers and maybe some other people that will be surprised may end up signing up with the Night Watch. And it's going to create a um, <clears throat> maybe a climate of hysteria. And I think we're going to see some of the like, what I was maybe mentioning earlier about people making false accusations or turning over their neighbors and colleagues over anything that they may deem to be suspicious. So, and then, um, so I think Sheridan will eventually go to Zaha Doom. 
You know, Tosh gave him the warning. If you go to Zaha Doom, you're going to die. I think Sheridan does eventually get there, but I think he's not going to be alone. Um, I think others will be with him to make that journey there to get some answers and to confront the shadows. Um, I think Kosh, I have a feeling that you're going to see a bigger um, relationship dynamic develop, of course, between Kosh and Sheridan. And I think Kosh will eventually reveal himself to Sheridan at some point. Um, and then um, I think Section 13 and Psycor are behind Nightwatch. I think they're the people that are pulling the strings. We haven't heard or seen anything from Section 13. No, I'm sorry, Bureau 13. I was getting my Star Treks and my Babylons crossed. Um, Bureau 13 and Psychor behind Nightwatch. And we haven't seen a lot from Bureau 13 lately, which I think means that they're probably the ones pulling a lot of the strings behind the Nightwatch program. And then I want more and more Vorlons. I want to see more of them than just Kosh. Kosh is my favorite. He's my homeboy. But I want to see some of the others within the Vorlon race. That is all. Andrew, questions, predictions? So uh, first question uh, could Morden have sabotaged the Icarus, resulting in the death of Sheridan's wife and maybe uh, all the others? For predictions, uh, Zach Allen joining the Night Watch will eventually cause a conflict of interest between the Night Watch and uh, B5's own security personnel. And I think I had one more. Uh, yeah, uh, another prediction. There are more first ones. Uh, Delenn do just doesn't know it, and Kosh, as always, is being secretive about it. And Emily, questions, predictions? Okay, we'll start with my prediction that Morden is not the only one working with the Shadows, either from the Icarus or other vessels that may have encountered them. And one of their other go-betweens might be working with the organization behind Dr. Hendricks or maybe even Bureau 13. What better way to sow discord than to help fund organizations that sow distrust among their own society while also, you know, creating war between other groups. <laughs> nice. I actually take off my tin my tinfoil hat and give it to you, Emily. Well done. I like You're it. You're welcome. All right. So questions. Uh we covered the cut. Um how many Minbari know the, about the Vorlons or like what they are? Um, because was what I really want to know is, is the Minbari who poison Kosh working with the shadows? Like how would they know how to poison them? Where did they get that information? Who was in the alliance during the previous war against the shadows? We know the Minbari were there and the Vorlons was there like were the Narn involved somehow, or were they doing something else? Can Drawl help B5 fight the shadows? Because he's on the planet near B5 doing the whatevers. Like, does he have, will he end up coming back and having a role in this? Yeah. Can you tell I went back and watched all of season uh, one? <laughs> I was about to say, is someone doing a season one rewatch right now? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I rewatched all of season one. Um, let's see, who else? Oh, was the guy who found the eye working with Morden in the shadows? The eye, Londo's eye? Because if you watch it, Morden's in the background kind of smiling while the transaction is happening. Like he knows about it or is involved somehow. Um, the gray triangle that showed up on Delin's forehead when she was talking to Morden, how? With, how, how did that show up and what's the connection to him in the shadows? 
because we haven't really seen that show up and they have a conversation, boom, it's there. And my last question, which you could, might actually be able to answer, um, is the planet Catherine explored in the same system as Zaha Doom, the sector segment 957? No. Okay. And actually, this was a question that was brought up on the Usenets again, was because, you know, obviously, as we kind of discussed, the meta, the Sinclair to Sheridan change was forced because of Michael O'Hare's um, uh, mental health. Mm -hmm. And so people were asking, well, was Catherine supposed to be the one who woke up the shadows as opposed to the Icarus? Was that the original plan? And JMS said no, uh, that for one, the shadows woke up earlier because the Icarus showed up in 2256, not 2258, which is when we saw that episode. Um, so it is not the same place. Okay. Read into that as you will. Yeah, I think that covers it. I feel like you've been catching up on not having too many questions for a couple episodes, Emily, and you felt like you had to catch up, and I like it. I like it. I just had to piece some things together, but the... What was it in the warper with the shadow suits? Mm -hmm. I was like, mm, are the shadows behind the shadow suits? Giving people some tech and information. She's going to never give that tinfoil hat back to you. Okay, Justin. It's mine it. now. I Justin, will reclaim it by force. <laughs> um, that, sounds like a, that sounds like a live YouTube event waiting to happen. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the crazier one? Um, you want to go that route? Right. That's um, you do not have the time, the certifications, or the medications for that. <laughs> if you would like um, to provide pro bono therapy to the hosts of Gray 17, please email us at gray17podcast at gmail.com. Pack a lunch. So, yeah, we're, we're going to be here for a while. Um, I just have one last question then. Um, so, they, so, they, so, Delenn said that they known for about three years that the shadows were coming is that before babylon 5 went online or is that the same year as the pilot took place the icarus was sent out in 2256 okay. the gathering was 2257 and the pilot episode not the gathering midnight in the firing line was 2258 okay so then they knew before even coming to Babylon 5 that the shadows were on the rise. So interesting. That is all. Cool. Anybody else have any questions, predictions they want to throw out that they haven't discussed yet? Okay. With that, we will go ahead and end it for our newbies. And they will come back next week to, again, talk about knives. Okay. Whether you're watching Tubi, Roku, your DVD, whatever. Knives is next week. Keep that in mind. So we're watching Forks. Gotcha. Shut up. <laughs> it's Spoon. Gotcha hot out with this spoon. My spoon is too it's big. Oh, you twit. Anyway. Oh, God. My anus is bleeding. Oh, jeez. Oh, my God. <laughs> Whenever somebody mentions spoons, I that's what I'm <sighs> Okay. So... Until next week, be sure to also check out our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, audio podcasts, regardless of where you're watching this. And be sure to click all the buttons, the subscribe, notify, thumbs up, 
all of that and also we could really use some more reviews we haven't got any reviews in a while so throw some reviews out there audible spotify uh apple apple's a big one unfortunately but it is so send in those reviews help us out and we will be here next week to talk about knives and if you want to have spoilers and talk about these questions predictions stick around after the credits so until next week i have been scott and with me has been blake nicole kevin dustin mike emily andrew don't sound so excited andrew andrew and andrew there you go that was better good job proud of you yeah once more with feeling there we go it's andrew your fingers Hi, everybody. No, Hi, beer fingers. Andrew. That's beer fingers. Beer fingers. Beer fingers. I, I, I feel like we could have got at least a hair flip with the, you know. <laughs> yes. There we go. <laughs> Be still, my heart. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to Gray 17, a Babylon 5 podcast. You can find all the places to listen to and watch this podcast at anchor.fm slash gray 17 podcast or youtube.com at Gray17Podcast. We want to hear from you, so join the conversation at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, or Patreon. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review where you are listening to or watching this podcast. Gray17 is not affiliated with, and the podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by Warner Brothers or any other owners of the Babylon 5 copyright. All clips included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. The opening and closing themes are available from Falling Matter on YouTube. And what's out there? The rim. And beyond that? The truth. It's like herding fucking cats. Okay. Oh, did they miss the Clark piece? I well, wait, and we can talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just like, what the fuck? <laughs> okay. It's because when one of them throws out an idea. <sighs> Again, tell me you've never worked for government without telling me you've never worked for government. <laughs> yeah. Who's funding this? The government. <laughs> How but can they afford wrong. it? Doesn't the matter. Because they want to. Welcome back to Beyond the Rim again. Spoiler warning, if you have not watched past In the Shadow of Zaha Doom, you should leave now because we are going to talk about all the newbies' questions and predictions. And they did have quite a few this week, so we're going to get into it. So, guys, the first questions we have dealt with Mr. Morden and the Icarus. I'm going to kind of put them together, and that is, did more crew of the Icarus survive? Was Morden the cause of the destruction of the Icarus? And is Morden serving willingly? Well, we know there's at least one other, if not a couple more from the crew that are still walking around. Whether they survived or not is a more of a meta question. But um, no, I don't think there's any evidence that Morden caused the, the, the destruction. I'm pretty sure that that was, that was the shadows. But um I don't know. I, I'm not convinced that the entire surviving crew, what is it? Do we do we have any any evidence that there's more than just the two, Anna Sheridan and... Yeah, Mark Twain, Mark Twain basically, I call him Mark Twain because he looks like Mark yeah. Twain. I don't know, it's, it's, Justin is his name. Um, he basically says that people get put on ice until they're needed. Okay. So okay. when they realize that they were dealing with 
Sheridan, they pulled his wife out of mothballs and sent her to deal with him. Okay. And so do we know if there's other Icarus crew out there? No, but you can assume that what what Sheridan said, there was over 160 some odd crew members. So you can assume these three that we're going to meet are probably not the only ones. I think you can assume that Anna Sheridan is not a willing participant, whether Morden is or not, is an entirely different matter. Yeah. And I think willing is a, might not be the right word either. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't think it really mattered. You know, the shadows, I think, could take these people, do whatever they want with them, basically. Yeah. I think it's a matter of how painful is the process. Yeah. Yeah. And if it's, if they're, I mean, and if the shadows feel that they're worth it, I mean, if somebody's going to put up too much of a fight, well, we have more de- people we can deal with. Let's just get rid of that one. We actually got into a little bit of trouble with this, Blake. Because uh, we, we talked about the, and I, I coined the term meat puppet several episodes ago. And a lot of people in the comments disagreed with us, but I still think that Morden is not a willing participant or however you want to define that. I think he is um more of a a tool in the toolbox rather than somebody who is trying to get ahead or be narcissistic and trying to do something for himself i think he is just being operated by his shadow counterparts to do what they need him to do i agree i because i again i think the evidence there is anna sheridan you know there's no way that she would she would be uh you know a, a participant in that if she had any sort of control whatsoever so who who knows they never talk about what kind of person morden was before the uh incident with the icarus it would be interesting to see if uh what jms says about that if he ever did say anything about it but um I, yeah i think the the anna sheridan piece tells you what you want to know yeah, I, I remember, mean, I, I mean, oh, go ahead, Mike, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and I think uh, somebody else pointed it out that, you know, when Talia passes him in the hallway and, and that scene where his face blacks out much the same way that the shadow, the creatures themselves kind of appear, uh, it, it it tells me that he is essentially a shadow hiding inside of a Morden suit at that point. And remember, too, I mean, after Zaha Doom literally gets nuked, Morden shows back up with a uh, Kentucky Fried Crispy skin, so the shadows can reanimate as well. Just talking about that scene real quick, we didn't—I didn't say it during the during the show uh, with the newbies, but um, David Eagle talks about his original vision for that that short scene in the hallway with Talia and Morden, and he filmed that completely differently. He actually had six cameras set up. And he wanted every shot to kind of converge. And the producers took a look at it and were like, yeah, this is way too complicated. And so they just made it the one shot that you see. But I would love to see his original concept. Not that I think we ever would, but it would be very interesting because the way it was described in the reading I was doing uh, made it sound pretty cool. Can you imagine if we got a B5 series that actually had a budget? Yeah. I'm still waiting for San Diego Comic-Con. <laughs> I think the last piece on the Morden part, too, because we'll find out later on the shadows, because Kosh uses uh, Lita to carry part of himself around when he wants to, you know, have these out-of-body moments. 
So I would assume the shadows could do the same thing. And that to me is kind of what they're probably doing here with these folks. That makes sense, Blake. That goes into another one of the questions we had and is this, are these actually shadows on B5 or are they projections or something else? Yeah, they're there. Yeah. Um, they use some sort of cloaking field of some sort, which they, the ships can clearly use too. I was surprised that no one, no one really uh, latched onto that either. Yeah, and we we know they're there because they're going to kill Kosh. Right. They're they're going to physically and actually, I mean, we already saw this, and it was alluded to by the newbies right. in this episode. Kosh got dented by these guys earlier, so they're mm -hmm. definitely not projections. They're there. They're physical. They're just operating in a different spectrum of light than what we're normally. Yeah, which I think is telling when Sheridan has Zach fiddle with the cameras and flip it through different spectrums, and they briefly, you know, get their cover blown. And that's a defining moment for Sheridan too. He at this point uh, he he decides that it's no longer about his wife. It's no longer about his personal vendetta. It's about everybody. And he makes that decision when he doesn't tell Zach what he sees. And that's a huge that's a huge turning point for Sheridan. That's going to obviously pay up later on. So keeping on the Morden train here, is Morden going to target Sheridan and B5 after his little stay in the brig? And will this speed up the Shadow's plans? Not really. I don't think we see any evidence that that uh, Morden has any more animus towards Sheridan or anyone else after this episode, except for possibly Veer for very different reasons. Yeah, but no, I mean, the they, Sheridan does what he needs to do, and Delan and Kosh do what they need to do, and that is keep quiet. The Shadows still believe that no one knows they're there, and we figure that out too because when we, we have that conversation with the Delan and Jakar next season where she basically apologizes for letting Jakar believe that he was alone in this because they didn't want the Shadows to, uh, they didn't want the Shadows to know that they knew they were there, so... The shadows are still ignorant, and that's a huge... You know, it's going to be quite a bit longer before Jakar really proves that he can be trusted. You know, at this point, he hasn't really indicated much about that other than, um, you know, he's he's asking for help and that's that's not a mess. You know, that's not always a good enough reason to completely trust somebody. Mm -hmm. And I think the show even addresses that because when Delin does eventually tell Jakar what they did and what they knew, Ship of Tears. Jakar makes that comment, I would have killed you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and she makes a comment at a different time too. You were not the same man that came to this station mm -hmm. three years ago. Yep. When she makes the comment, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the key point is the, the the shadows are still ignorant of what the others know, and that's what needs to happen so they don't move quickly. But if Sheridan had tipped his hand, then yeah, they would have moved quickly, quickly, and that's what the other folks do not want to have happen. So, oh, go ahead, Mike. Oh, I was just going to say, I, you know, the guys seem like they got kind of drilled in on almost some of the technical aspects of of the shadows and who they are and what they can do, you know, talking about their cloaking devices and whether they provided, you know, the Mimbari with the, the stealth suit and this, that, and the other. And I actually think it's kind of interesting that nobody, nobody has brought up the question of who can see the shadows walking around B5 since we've decided that they are in fact physically there. I, I can only assume that Kosh can. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, when you have, 
Sheridan, Kosh, and Delenn having a conversation in, you know, I won't say openly, but they are having that conversation with, I guess, some degree of confidence that there's not a shadow in the room listening. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's interesting to, to, to know, like, well, when when can Delenn talk openly about the shadow situation you know that mm. she is confident well, that there isn't one in the room behind her well and delenn you know she she has the the, the glowy forehead then yes i i don't know exactly what to what to call that that situation but she clearly has a system an early warding system where she knows if shadows are around that has something to do with the triluminary when we commented on this in one of our earlier uh discussions too when warden first appeared with with Ed Wasser's portrayal, there's times you can tell where he looks off. If he gets asked a question or spoke to, he plays it so well because he kind of looks off like he's waiting to get the response mm-hmm. from his shadow handlers. So great. Um, and I kind of think they tend to stay close to him. I don't think they veer off necessarily much from him because they don't want to get found out any more than anyone else. Because, I mean, they've commented on that, right? They're not ready yet. They don't want people to know they're back. Yeah, it's just, it's just an interesting line of thinking. And then, you know, I watched this episode unfold and I kind of asked myself, the fact that Sheridan doesn't a, a, a 180 about face and lets Morden loose, you know, they could easily assume like, well, he just didn't have the authority to keep him any longer or whatever. But, I, you know, I don't know. I have to think like if I was the shadows, I would I would want to know more about what happened <laughs> why why the sudden change of heart you know and they could easily just follow somebody around and find out i, I could see it almost that the the shadows are very arrogant mm-hmm. or and, there's that <laughs> yeah I, I just that's, that's that's my assumption i mean we know the reason why they got stomped a thousand years ago is because they moved too quickly so their one thing is okay we'll just move slower this time and these little peon races don't have a shot and the Vorlons, because we've dealt, done this several times, are not going to get involved. So we just don't care. We've already got the humans jumping through hoops for us back on Earth. So eh, that's just my assumption. Will we see the Rocky training montage between Kosh and Sheridan? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, we already have. Gonna be not going to be a... Uh, a rocky training uh, montage exactly but you know it's gonna be you know him asking questions and having them uh sort of not really answered usually but that's the vorlon way mm-hmm. so let's uh we got s- several more questions many from our good friend emily so let's roll through these fairly quickly here so how do the narn fit into the shadow history we'll definitely hear more about this but as we've kind of already talked about on this side of the show, the Narn were absolutely involved a thousand years ago, but not as a major race. They were invaded by the shadows. Their, their telepaths were targeted by the shadows, and that's why there are no more Narn telepaths. And we find in the Book of Jaquan later on exactly what happened to the Narn by the shadows. What is on the crystal that Morden is giving to Londo through Veer? It doesn't matter. Morden's favorite Pornhub selections. <laughs> it's the Maltese Falcon. It doesn't matter. It's a MacGuffin. Do you think that Morden probably is into like the real kinky shit, Brett Blake? Do you like? I'm, I'm thinking probably. Is, is he like a snuff guy? You think? Well, given his role in the universe, I'm gonna say yeah. <laughs> oh. Who else?
else is going to join the Night Watch? Well, you know, none of the none of the series regulars other than Zach, which he isn't this season, but he will be next season. But um, but several key security personnel are going to join, and it's going to cause major problems next season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Zach is the audience perspective into the Night Watch, and I think that's a great choice because he's kind of new to us. But as we saw with Nicole, I mean, he's somebody who's endearing to the fans. So I think that it's an excellent decision to make him kind of our inroad into the Night Watch. And our guys are a little bit more tinfoil hatty than most, but I think a lot of people would be like would be like Zach and say, well, I mean, this sounds good here. You know, the idea that we're trying to make peace and we're trying to keep everyone safe. So why not join in which of course is what happens historically and is not good more than that i mean and it it doesn't sound like at least at this point anything has been laid out about what is required of zach in order to earn the extra 50 credits on his paycheck besides wearing an armband so you know if if his mindset is that's all he's got to do and he just collects some extra cash then yeah, absolutely. I, I know all kinds of people who would jump at that. Well, and he tells Garibaldi that too. When Garibaldi finally confronts him down the road, he's like, I just signed up because it was extra pay. I didn't yeah. think I would have to turn anybody in. You know, sooner or later, someone from Nightwatch is going to come say, hey, if you want to keep getting this money, then you need to give us a name. And that's where it's going to get interesting. Well, yeah. and, and we see that very scene play out. I mean, that that's exactly what happens. It's a few episodes down the road where there's the when the evidence comes out about Clark's role in the death of Santiago and there starts to be some protests about that. And it's a shop owner with one of the shop owners on B5 has a arrest the trader sign. And the same guy that from Nightwatch is sitting there asking Zach, well, you didn't report this. Why? And he says, well, I didn't think anything of it. Well, give me a name. And he just pushes it. Well, it's just a name. And I mean, so it's that exact play out where Oh, just just give us a name and we'll do the rest. Yeah, it's it's about eliminating dissent. It's it's about deciding what is subversive and and eliminating it completely. And it's it's crazy to me that the the newbies didn't latch on to what they already know about Clark and assume or at least suggest that he's behind it all because they they certainly know enough at this point to to make that connection, but no one seemed to at all and that was that was very surprising to me i know they were suspicious about clark before they had a reason to be suspicious about right and now all of a sudden it's like well maybe it's not him clark who's that no let's talk about budgets yeah well you know and and i'll say this too i think there's another there's another interesting thing about the the whole night watch approach that uh I mean, hell, you could you could equate this to to timeshares and then the way that they're sold, but it's it's the idea that they come at you not only with with an innocent cover story, but they go ahead and they start giving you that money up front. They like they get you comfortable with the idea that you're getting this extra fifty dollars, and then they're going to take it away if you don't give them a name. Mm-hmm. People instinctively aren't going to want to go tattle on other people unless they're like members of an HOA. But <laughs> but but once they've put there money in your that, pocket and now they're going is. to take it from you, people react very differently to uh, that. All the HOA know? presidents it, are going to be uh, bringing the pitchforks on the on Facebook uh, next yeah. week. That's come, fine. 
Night Watch is the Babylon 5 HOA. The but fall the... of civilization starts with an HOA. <laughs> I, I think people people might naturally turn away a can a carrot dangled in front of them, but once the carrot's already in their mouth, they're gonna exactly. fight a lot harder to keep it. Yeah. That's Absolutely. the point. Human, and... human nature. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Along those same lines, we kind of already hit on it that the environment of distrust in B5 is going to become an issue. We've talked about that yeah. to a point where, uh, yeah, um, we're going to have some severed dreams and everything else. Did the Mumbari that poisoned Kosh work for the shadows? In fact, did everyone, because this is where Emily's going, did everyone who popped up in season one work for the shadows? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's understandable. You've got the, you, you, we now know who the big bad are and we've kind of known for a bit, but now we actually really like legitimately know who the big bad are and what their intentions are. So we're going back and checking things out, but really Mr. Morton has been the shadow broker. haha, ha, Mass Effect. Also, we will learn that the ones who have been working for the shadows are ignorant of it. And that is the Clark administration and Psychor. but it's not like they are overtly doing it and it's not, Everyone who te- shows up on the station is a shadow person. Let's see here, we got a few more questions. Who was in the alliance a thousand years ago, other than the Minbarian Vorlons? Guys, who was in that alliance? I don't think they did. They ever tell us? Jeffrey Sinclair was in the alliance. Oh well, <laughs> I mean, other <laughs> than <laughs> yeah, Minbari not born have been born of Minbari, but other than him, I don't think they mentioned the other races really that were the no. first ones. Well, no, the first ones weren't involved in this one. That's the because okay. the, that, that's how we win the fight this time is Sheridan gets the first ones to come in off the sidelines and help. Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So um, we know the Narn, obviously, we're a part of it, but not really a fighting force. We we can make assumptions like uh, it was infection was mentioned by the newbies this week and the akaran warrior was created a thousand years ago so you can connect the dots there that a lot of different races were probably involved somewhere for uh with the the conflicts but as we kind of learn here too the shadows don't just charge in and have one big fight they manipulate they cause internal strife that's how they fight so there could be countless different sides and factions Every time the shadows show up, for all we yeah, know, the shadows may have manipulated the Akarans into creating their own ultimate weapon that killed them. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is kind of what I mean. the The shadows are going to get the Earth Alliance to put Shadow Tech on their their fleet, or at least some of their ships. Well, as I recall, we talked about that during that episode because we looked at that timeline because they'd mentioned Akara was always being invaded and. Mm-hmm different things we kind of brought up because of the timeline fit what that would have been right around the time of the last shadow war there's another fun sci-fi trope that i'm getting a little bit tired of <laughs> yes let's take our enemy's technology and willy-nilly integrate it into our systems it always <laughs> goes Trek well right? the borg yes yeah <laughs> it always goes well okay we got a couple more here we talked about Chekhov's laser beam on Epsilon 3. Can draw help B5 fight the shadows? Yes. That is a big part of what's going to happen in terms of, and Blake, you kind of, I mean, I think it was Blake alluded to this already, is when we start finding out the evidence that Clark was involved in Santiago's death, it's because of Ivanova trekking that stuff down on Epsilon 3. And then, Kevin, to your point about the first ones, uh, draw will help 
contact the first ones. So Draw will definitely be involved. And also Draw is going to help send B4 back a thousand years. <laughs> what else does Draw do? Uh, you helped us more that time, not this time. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else on that? On the Draw yeah. part? Here's one I forgot to mention earlier when we were talking the Vorlons. How many Mimbari know about the Vorlons? I would argue Dylan didn't truly even know about the Vorlons. I mean, she knew, but she even had to go to Kosh mm-hmm. before she entered the Chrysalis and said, I need to know it's true. Show me that it's true. And he, you know, showed her his wings, which we don't know that yet, but that's what he did. So even Dylan was questioning if what the Vorlons were selling was a pile of shit or not. Well, and we'll know, we'll find out later that Ducat knew, but I don't think it's even common knowledge among the great council, let alone, you know, anyone else past that. Yeah. I think they oh. just know the Vorlons is an advanced race who've been around longer than anybody else. They don't know that this is a continual conflict between the two yeah. races over and over again. Do we know that the Vorlons other than Kosh have actually willingly revealed this to anybody? I mean, I could, I could well see that Kosh revealed his true nature to Delenn and, and, and made that first move but maybe the rest of the vorlons are not on that page and you make a good point because i'm pretty sure if kosh 2.0 had been there for the fall of night that um he would have let sheridan fall i would imagine Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because absolutely because the vorlons themselves want the cycle to continue they see it just like the shadows do it helps the races grow their job there is to cultivate and reap haha mass effect what's going on so i don't i think the vorlons would absolutely let this stuff happen kosh is different yeah which really means that kosh might be the singular entity that decided to break the cycle and change things and part of that is because of his relationship with sheridan which is starting to build at the end kosh takes on the figure of sheridan's father to communicate with him because kosh has a father-son relationship with sheridan at that point well, really, and, I suppose what I'm saying is I think it, it may have even been more so to do with Kosh's relationship with Delenn before she. That's true. Yeah, very true. He's been, he's kind of been able to see what's, uh, what the uh, the younger races are capable of. Yeah. Now, to your point of how, where the Vorlons shown people them who they are willingly, I mean, I think the Vorlons obviously did that way back in the day. That's why we, in this universe see angels the way we do because the Vorlons, you know, manipulate everybody. But at this point, they don't need to do that anymore. Uh, let's see. Let's move into predictions. So Sheridan will go to Zaha Doom. And I was like, oh, Andrew, good job. And then he threw in the caveat, but he won't be alone. I'm like, oh, failure. Well, te- I mean, technically, technically he won't because he'll have the Anna meat puppet with him when he goes to Zaha Doom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think he was referring to Sheridan's going to bring a posse. Yes. <laughs> well, right. he'll also, but in here's the thing, though, he'll also have that part of Kosh with him. Right. That's true. That's true. And then, he will have that piece of Kosh with him that tells okay. him to jump now. And then he'll, he'll find Lorien, so he's not going to be lo- alone then either. All right. Okay, so he's right we'll on a technicality. <laughs> <laughs> I still see Lorien's the man that. in the we middle. not defend Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. Sheridan will go to Zaha Doom, and the episode is called Zaha Doom. Okay, the relationship between Kosh and Sheridan will strengthen, and Kosh will reveal himself to Sheridan. Yes. Yeah. And not only that, Kosh will reveal himself to everybody to save Sheridan, 
which is again to our what we were just talking about, is not what the Vorlons had planned to do. Because again, Mike, to your point with Delin, Delin's the one that goes to caution says, if you're going to do something, you need to do it right now. Mm-hmm. As Sheridan's basically falling. <laughs> oh, Bureau 13. Yes. Psychor are behind Nightwatch. Well, oh, Bureau 13 is not really a thing anymore in the series. Oopsie. Uh, it's just, it's crazy to me that again i know we talked about this already that they just did not make any connection with clark but you know we we find out later on that uh, yes psychor is is peripherally involved but you know that the major impetus behind uh night watch is you know clark and his many minions mm-hmm. yep consolidation of power and getting the voices that contradict that power out of the way right and for those who may not remember when we joke about bureau 13 just a little bit of meta commentary so bureau 13 was put together for that one episode and the intention was to use them again and then jms realized because he was contacted by the publisher that bureau 13 was actually a copyrighted name of a tabletop board game so jms as he said apologized and never use the term again. So no more Bureau 13. Sorry, guys. It's a shame you couldn't call it Section 13. Oh, I'm sorry. That's something else. Even Justin. I would have got a whole other letter. (laughs) It just shows that D Space Nine copied off of uh, Babylon 5, guys. That's what Uh, that is. Let's not go there. And, you know, and you keep keep mentioning um, Mass Effect. And I don't know why you're mentioning a completely unique and not at all similar thing, because that's just crazy. (laughs) Well, to Mike's point about sci-fi tropes, again, if you really want to say that people are copying out people, the reason why Alfred Bester is called Alfred Bester is because JMS got a lot of his telepath information from the works of Bester. That's not copying. That's homages. And building upon other people's work. That's how authorship works, folks. <sighs> okay. <laughs> we'll get to see more Vorlons. Yes. We already talked about Kosh 2.0. I mean, we could see one more Vorlon. Well, then you could see a whole Vorlon fleet on the way to whoop someone's ass. Yes. <laughs> that's true. Because after, And that's, that's the thing that, again, going back to Mass Effect references, but um, after a while, the Vorlons will start deciding that, okay, it's time to start getting rid of all shadow uh, connections in the galaxy. So that means if you've been touched by the shadows, you need to be eradicated. And that fleet starts doing that. So we will see that. Zach joining the Night Watch will cause conflict of interest for the B5 security. It, just, yes. just a little, yeah. Minor incident. But it, I, again, it, it goes back to Zach as a character growing too, because he will have that confrontation with Garibaldi and have to make the choice of does he stay with a, a loyal puppet or does he decide to go on his own path? And a, a, that's a, he's really truly the main side character where we get to see that. Obviously all of our hero characters make the same choice down the road, but Zach is the one we get to see actually get tormented by that choice, which I enjoy. There are more first ones. Delin doesn't know and Kosh won't tell her. There I are don't... more first ones. Yes. Yes. Dylan doesn't know them. Yeah, I don't. I'm not... I was thinking about that comment too when I watched it again. And I don't. Dylan is fairly. I don't think she's really adamant that, like, there's only one first one left. She's just like, okay. And most of the first ones left. Uh, left. 
but one stayed. So I don't even think that she's like, you know, it's black and white. There's one first one. I think since this is just her, her narrative of it, but obviously we will know that there are more first ones we've seen one first one already we have seen the aliens at sigma 957 which are yes. first ones yes that's what i was gonna say yes and we've seen jason ironheart become but that's about it uh, he became a second one uh do we hold on do we um <laughs> hold on. there's there's we don't know what their race is do we draw there's drawl and then the the the, well, the ship that came to draw you, he uh, means the, he means the guy oh, who draw shit. replaced. You're, yes, thank you. Yeah, the guy <laughs> on Epsilon three. Uh, the Epsilon three aliens are not first ones. They just happened al- along the technology as well. The great machine was there. Hmm. Okay. Right. I yeah. I okay. I'll yeah, JMS in his notes that uh, was not a first one. Yeah. Very well. Final prediction: Morden is not the only one working with the shadows. The shadows may have been involved with Bureau Thirteen, Doctor Hendricks, etc., 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 etc. Morton is not the only one working with the shadows. <laughs> President uh, Clark is working with the shadows. But uh, yeah, because there's all sorts of people working with the shadows. They just don't all know it. Yeah, but Morton, in this case in point, is the emissary of the shadows or liaison or whatever you want to call him. So, and we'll find out later they have others. I mean, it's already been applied because the episode where Franklin got freaky with a patient, mm-hmm. uh, the creature in that was headed towards Zaha Doom. Yes. And we'll find out later that Drock. So they have others that are working for them openly that know what they're doing. And that creature was heading for Zaha Doom before the shadows had awoken. So Zaha Doom just kind of acts as like this homing beacon for all things evil and crazy. It's the Fox News of the Babylon 5 universe. Oh, boy. <laughs> you can send your comments to <laughs> podcast at gmail.com. Oh, no, we, we haven't seen the Fox News of the Babylon 5 uh, universe quite yet, but it's coming pretty soon. Yeah, I was going to say. Oh, that, that's that true. Zahadun could be the Trump rally of the uh, uh, universe. One of the Babylon 5 Facebook groups, after I posted our the link to, and now for a word, I swear to you, they're got they're turned into a conversation, and I will use conversation lightly uh, between is ISN and a now for the word a now for a word more like CNN or more like Fox, Ugh. and the debate continued. And it's like, oh my god! I was going to say, <laughs> comparing Zahadum to Fox News would imply that the shadows knew they were full of shit. <laughs> well, based on the. Uh, the trial going on right now with, uh, uh, um, uh, I forgot the name of it, with the voting machine company. Dominion. Dominion. Yeah. No, yeah, Dominion. There you go. Why did I forget that? <laughs> okay. I think we pissed off enough people for one day. You, <laughs> Excellent. Do you guys have anything else you want to add about this episode before we move on to Knives? I don't think so. I think we beat it into the ground pretty good. I'm just, again, happy that the newbies are still latching onto this stuff. And some of the predictions are getting pretty close to home and some aren't, but it's really fun to watch them get involved with uh, this as we continue on. And as we've kind of alluded to over and over again and had uh, internal conversations with the newbies outside the podcast itself, it's only going to start speeding up from here. And I am so looking forward to the last little chunk of season two. And as we move into season three, which many would argue is the strongest season. I think you can argue either between season three and season four, but uh, depending on who you are, you would argue that one of those two seasons is the strongest. So I'm looking forward to getting there very, very soon. We've also got some big ones coming up uh, in a few weeks. 
we'll be talking divided loyalties and that one is going to be interesting mm-hmm. to see how the newbies react to that sucker i have a question the answer is 42 okay <laughs> do we do we know if zaha doom is actually the home world of the shadows or is it as you pointed out or mentioned earlier is it the i-80 truck stop of evil <laughs> the iowa 80 truck stop oh my god <laughs> you can go to the flying J. Yeah, I mean, is it, is it just the place where all the evil shit goes for some reason? You know, we've seen Zaha Doom and it looks like a big barren dust ball. And so you'd, you'd think, obviously, there were, there were like runes with glowing markings on them or whatever, but I don't know. You'd think there would be some semblance of an advanced civilization there. And I'm surprised no. nobody has had a discussion about what the Warlon homeworld looks like yet. My vote is that it's probably gross. Uh, the shadows were repeatedly defeated and driven back to their home world of Zahadum. Okay. So, based on the fandom wiki, the shadows' home world is Zahadum. So, at some point, Zahadum has probably been nuked a bunch, and they mm-hmm. just don't bother rebuilding it. They just go back there and hang out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> just kind of hang. Seems like they live underground. So, oh, no. Zaha Doom is covered by an extensive mountain ranges. The temperature average is 50 degrees Fahrenheit and gravity is approximately 1.3 G. The mountains were made of igneous rock and the plains of sedimentary rock. Violent dust storms cloaked roughly 25% of the planet. Blah, 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 Nevada. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go ahead and wrap it up there. And we'll come back next week to discuss Knives. And we are only, what, six episodes away from the end of season two. We are trucking along. So again, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, click the like button, click the notify bell, do all the buttons, just not the down arrow button. Everything else, do the buttons. And we'll be here next week to discuss Knives with the newbies and with the first ones. Until then, I'm Scott, and with me has been... Mike? Kevin? Yeah, Mike? Yeah, we did it right. Woo! Bye. If you go to Zahadu, you will die. And I die. But I will not go down easily, and I will not go down alone. You will teach me?